The New Testament reading is taken from Matthew, chapter 6, verses 7 to 14. Matthew, chapter 6, verse 7. And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they drink that they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask him. Pray then like this, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts, as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. Amen. Thanks, Liz. Uh, let me begin this morning uh, by asking you a question. When you pray, if you pray, what do you ask for first? Uh, perhaps you begin by thanking God uh, for what he's done in your life. Or maybe you first turn to prayer and ask for the requests of others or for events that are coming up in your life or for God's will to be done. All these things are great things and as we move further on in the Lord's Prayer over the next few weeks, we're going to see how Jesus teaches us to pray for them. But they're not the things that he starts with. At last time, a couple of weeks ago in this series looking at the Lord's Prayer, we were told who to address our prayers to, to our Father in heaven. Uh, this time we begin a series of six different things to pray for. And in the first one we're told to pray, hallowed be your name. We're told to start not by praying for ourselves, but by praying for God. Uh, so as uh, we start to do that this morning, uh, let's pray and ask for God's help. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we love to come before you this morning and to hear you speak. Lord, we ask that by your word we might see you more clearly and that through your spirit we might love you more deeply. In Jesus' name we ask. Amen. So this morning as we come back to Matthew chapter 6 and the Lord's Prayer and look at this second clause, this first thing to pray, hallowed be your name. Uh, we need to understand two things, don't we? Uh, we need to understand, first of all, the significance of names uh, and in particular the significance of God's name. And secondly, we need to know what it means to hallow something or to hallow someone. Uh, so that's what we're going to do this morning. Uh, that's going to be our structure. I'm going to take it uh, back to front, though. Uh, first of all, we're going to think about names, and then we're going to think about uh, hallowing those names. So first of all, what's in a name? What's in a name? Uh, William Shakespeare in Romeo and Juliet famously wrote, What's in a name? A rose by any other name would smell just a sweet. What something is called or labelled, and we, we hate that term, don't we? Labelling something is arbitrary to what it is. That's what we tend to think. Uh, the names that we give to our children uh, might be names that are significant in our family or they may sound nice, uh, but they don't necessarily tell us what that child is like. But the names given to people, and indeed the names given to God in the Bible, are not like that. In fact, they're completely the opposite. 
Names in the Bible have great significance and great meaning. They apply directly to what something is truly like. They speak specifically about its character. Perhaps the closest comparison today would be something like a brand. Brands aren't just the name that we call something, whether it's a company or a product or, I'm told, even a person, a personal brand is a thing. No, but they are carefully constructed identities that communicate in a very specific way how we should think about a product, a company, or a person. And they're of great value to those institutions. And biblically, though, a name is closely and directly tied to a person's character, to their reputation. It speaks of their intrinsic qualities. And so names are highly significant. And God's name then speaks of God's character, of what he is truly like. It speaks of God's reputation, of what people think of him. And it speaks of God's intrinsic qualities. God's name then is of ultimate significance. Uh, We could, and indeed some have done, whole sermon series looking at the different names that God is given in the Bible. But I just want to take a brief look at three this morning that stand out in particular. And the first one is this, El or Eloah or Elohim, and there are various derivatives of that throughout the Bible. But this is the root word which is most often translated in our Bibles today, simply God. And these are the names that speak of God's creative strength and power. And this is the name that describes God in Genesis chapter 1, speaking the universe into existence. This is the God who Moses, after God's people traveled through the Red Sea and are rescued from slavery in Egypt, who Moses compares to a rock on which his people stand. This is the God who reveals himself to Abraham, to Isaac and Jacob as El Shaddai, the one who has power to bring life back from the dead. The second name which is often used in the Old Testament is perhaps more well known. It's Jehovah or Yahweh. It's the word which is translated in our Bibles, Lord in all capitals. And it's God's covenant name his promise-making name between him and his people. It's the name that Moses was given when he was singled out to be the leader of God's people, and he asked God, well, who should I say is sending me? What authority do I have? And God responds by saying enigmatically, I am sends you. I am, or at least the, the Hebrew that we translate I am, is, is hard for us to translate and hard for us to get our heads around, but it carries the sense of God's absolute and eternal independence. God is outside of human intervention. He's outside of the universe. He's above and beyond all of those things. And yet he interacts with human beings and sets his love upon a people. And so special and so holy was that name that the Jewish people wouldn't even say it out loud. It's also the name that when Moses boldly approached God and asked to see his glory, glory it was so powerful that God had to hide Moses in a cleft in the rock and then spoke his name over him, saying, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, 
slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. God's name is a summary of who he is, of all the characteristics that make him worthy to be called God at all. And that name, therefore, bears huge significance. Uh, We read earlier from uh, Ezekiel uh, chapter 20 where God reminded his people that he had rescued them, that he had saved them, not because they deserved it. In fact, exactly the opposite was the case because God comes along time and time again and rescues his people and then they forget him. And the laws that he gives them that are designed to bring them life, they cast to one side and they start worshipping idols and doing terrible things And so God thinks, well, why don't I just get rid of them? But then he says, for the sake of my name, that it should not be profaned in the sight of the nations in whose sight had brought them out. For the sake of God's reputation, for the sake of the knowledge of his compassion, of his love, of his mercy, of his might, he acts with forgiveness that God's people don't deserve and rescues them anyway. Thirdly and finally is the name Jesus, which simply means God saves. Jesus' name, in a sense, summarizes all the names that have gone before. John's gospel tells us that Jesus is the fullness of God made flesh. He is the name above every name. In the early life of the church, in the first chapters of Acts, we see the apostles speaking and healing in the name of Jesus and telling the people that it is his name and only by his name that we can be saved. Philippians chapter 2 says that Jesus' name is going to be exalted above every other name. And Revelation chapter 1 reminds us that Jesus is the Alpha and the Omega. It takes Jesus' name and puts it right on top of Yahweh's name. Jesus is Yahweh. God's name then is highly significant. It's not just the term that we use or call out to. It's everything about him. It's who he is and what he does. And so when we come to prayer, we should think about that. The first thing on our mind should be who we are praying to. Not the ceiling, but God Almighty. God full of compassion, God full of love, God full of forgiveness, God full of justice. God full of power and might. It's these qualities, his creative power, his glory, his holiness, that ought to occupy our minds as we come before God in prayer. But do they? This is so different to how we tend to pray, isn't it? When I asked you that question right at the beginning, what is the first thing that you pray for? I doubt that many people answered for God's name to be hallowed. And to be honest, if I was sat where you were sat and someone asking me the same question, I wouldn't say that either. But we need the reality of who God is to occupy our thoughts first because that will transform how we pray, what we pray, whether we pray at all. Because it's only by knowing who God really is that it's worth praying and that we can have confidence to come to God and to be sure that he will hear. If God occupies our thoughts, then our requests will be 
brought in line to his will. And more than that, when we pray and ask God's name to be hallowed, we are asking not just for things, but for God himself. And he is the ultimate prize. He is the ultimate answer to all our prayers. God's name then is more than just what we call him. It refers to all that he is. What then does it mean to hallow that name? Well, hallow simply means to make holy or to sanctify something, to set it apart. It's not a word that we use very often, but there are a few specific contexts uh, that we do use that word. Um, maybe particularly at sporting grounds. If you start typing into Google hallow, you'll quite often get hallowed turf comes up next. Uh, so whether we're talking about Wimbledon or Wembley or Lourdes, we recognize those places as significant a special, a set apart. And to hallow something means to give it its due respect, to revere it, to stand in awe of it. And so when we pray, hallowed be God's name, what we're doing is we're asking that God's character, God's reputation, God's glory would be responded to in actually the only way that makes any sense at all, with worship and awe. We're praying that the reality of who God really is would be truly seen by us, by our church, by the world around us. And we're asking that that name, that reputation, that glory would therefore be lifted up, would be praised and worshipped and adored. But why would we do that? And why would God ask that of us? Is he just simply on some kind of ego trip? Well, no, I think there are two reasons why we ought to hallow God's name. And the first one is this, for the sake of justice. The first reason to hallow something, to respect it, is simply that it is right and fair to do so. I don't know if you've caught much of the Olympics over the last week or so. I think I've only seen a few brief highlights. But one thing I did see was an interview with a gold medal winning BMX rider from the UK, and as she was being interviewed and saying thanks to all those who'd helped her get the gold medal, the second place rider walked behind her. And this rider is actually the expected favorite and the hero of our gold medalist. And as she walked past, she pointed to the gold medalist and stuck up a number one. What she was saying was, even though I lost, it was a fair fight. She deserved to win. And it's right that she gets the respect and the plaudits that she's earned. Think about the way that you react when you watch a brilliant film or you finish a book that you just couldn't put down or you listen to an intoxicating piece of music or you've just had an unforgettable meal. It's natural, isn't it, for us to want to celebrate the director or the author or the composer or the chef. It's just right and, and fair. There's a natural sense of justice to it. We want to recognize, we want to respect people who've done incredible things. With God, though, this is taken to another level entirely because God deserves respect and awe, not just for the things that he has done. Incredible and wonderful though those things are, but for the very reality of who he is. You see, unlike those brands that we thought about earlier, there's no hypocrisy in God there's no gap between what he says and what he does. 
between who he claims to be and who he actually is. It's not like VW who may produce class-leading affordable cars but then cheat on their emissions testing. Or about that delivery company that can deliver nearly anything you want the next day but who goes to great lengths to avoid their tax bill. No, God isn't like that at all. There's no gap between his actions, between his deeds and his character. And theologian Andrew Wilson puts it like this. With the Son, as with God, there is no distinction between what it is and what it does. The Son gives light and heat because it is light and heat. Its actions reflect its identity. Its goodness is the overflow of its nature. God deserves awe and respect, not just because he does good and holy and just and beautiful and merciful and loving things, though he does do that, but because he is goodness, he is holiness, he is justice, he is beauty, he is mercy, and he is love. Uh, Think about a mountain, uh, maybe uh, Mount Everest set in the Himalayas, and think of standing before that mountain, maybe about to climb it. What's your response? Awe, respect, feeling small, surely. It's the most natural thing in the world for us to stand before a mountain range and acknowledge that we are small and it is big, and to revel in its majesty. But what about the one who creates mountain ranges with just a word? God is not on an ego trip here. He doesn't need us to remind him of who he is. But we do need to be reminded of who he is and what he has done. That is the source of all reality. Failing to remember who God is is like turning off the sun. We can't see anything else truly without him. The Bible tells us that the beginning of all wisdom is the right respect and fear of God. So we hallow God's name because it is only just to do so, but it doesn't stop there. The second reason to hallow God's name is for the sake of our joy. Let's go back to that mountain again. And we said, isn't it, there's something completely natural, completely appropriate about standing in awe of something like that, something that is bigger than ourselves, something that humbles us. But it's not just awe. It's delight. Perhaps mountains don't get you going, but surely you can think of something like that where you've experienced something so incredible that you have stood, whether literally or metaphorically, with your mouth open and called to whoever was around you and just said, you've got to come and look at this. You've got to see it. It's unbelievable. There's something joyful about being around things like that things that are majestic, things that inspire awe. Surely that's the reason why people go and climb mountains at all or visit the Taj Mahal or swim with sharks or build themselves a rocket so that they can go to the edge of space. It's not a matter of cold justice. It's a matter of joy. Something in all of us as humans longs for things that are bigger than ourselves, things that transcend us. But all those things, no matter what they are, are just a pinprick, just a drop in the ocean, just a faded image of one thing, of one person, of God himself. 
So we hallow God's name because he deserves it, but we hallow God's name as well because it's what it means to be human. It's what we were designed to do. And whether we're ready to recognize that that thing is God or not yet, it is God. And that will change the way that we pray. Firstly, it means that when we pray, we're going to be concerned for God's name. And when God's name is mishandled, when it is spoken flippantly of, when it is used as an insult, that will hurt us. And it will hurt us not just because we consider using God's name in vain rude or unimaginative. It will hurt us because we know that God. And he means so much to us. And so we will pray that God's name would be rightly respected and recognized by all. And we will pray for the freedom to be able to declare his name to others. But we'll pray as well that our lives, however imperfectly, would point to God and to his glory. In the chapter before Matthew chapter 6, where the Lord's Prayer is, uh, in the Sermon on the Mount, uh, Jesus encourages his followers and says, See that, it, that your good works are seen by others who don't know me and that they cause them to give glory to your Father in heaven. That is our goal as Christians, to live holy lives not so that other people would respect us or that other people would think we were moral or good people. None of those things are true, but that we would point away from ourselves and that they would say there's something different There's something that isn't coming from those people, but is coming from someone else. And finally, we would pray, wouldn't we, if we truly know and love God, and if we gain such joy from who he is, that other people would know that as well. That other people would come to know and enjoy God as their creator, as their savior, as their king, and as their father in heaven. So in summary, what does this first request, this first of six things to pray that Jesus models for us in the Lord's Prayer tell us? Well, it reminds us as we come to prayer, not to focus on ourselves, but to focus on God. It tells us to pray that God's name, his perfect character, his steadfast love, his power and his strength would be recognized more and more by us and by everyone. And we would ask these things, firstly, as a matter of justice, because God deserves all glory and power and worship. They rightfully belong to him. But we ask this, too, for the sake of ours and others' joy, that we may stand in awe of the majestic and holy creator God and enjoy his presence and his glory as only his children can. So let's do that now as we conclude. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, this morning we hallow your name. We recognize that you are the source of all goodness, all beauty, all love, all justice, all mercy. We worship you. And we ask that who you really are and the goodness and the majesty of that would be known by all and that you be rightly respected and held in awe. And we ask that our lives, Lord, both as individuals and as a church, imperfect as they are, 
would with you at work within us somehow cause other people to praise your name. And we ask that you'd help us to call other people into the joy of knowing you. And we pray all these things in and by the perfect name of your son, Jesus. Amen.